Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas. dot com slash acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. G G G G, take me away. G G G G, take me today. Welcome to another episode of the Gary Hour. I'm your host Gary Levitt. I think this is episode 51 or 52, but、uh, we talked to New York comedian Jay Welch. We're going to hear a formative experience of his of why he went from NYU law school to stand-up comedy. I always say it could be the suggestion of one person or one new experience that could change the course of all of our lives. You never know where it's going to come, and if you're open to it and it hits you, the course of your life can be completely changed from what path it was on. So that's kind of what happened with this. I won't blow the whole story, but I hope you enjoy it and I hope you get something out of it. This episode is brought to you by Future Moments. Makers of mobile apps for content creation. Go to the Apple App Store and search for Future Moments. If you're a filmmaker, musician, podcaster, they have an app that can make your life easier. Okay, I hope you enjoy this episode. Here we go. Never know. All right, Jay, welcome here. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, so.、Uh, Let's get right into it. You have a law degree from NYU. Yes, I do. What are you doing, wasting your time with stand-up comedy?、Um, well, that's one way to look at it.、Mm-hmm. Um, another way to look at it is, what was I doing, wasting my time going to law school? Yeah, I mean that's a big commitment, and to finish as well. A- well, you know, I mean, <clears throat> once you're in a thing, it's less of a commitment to keep doing the thing.、Uh, Interesting.、True. Well, that says a lot about you. No, no, no. It's like once you've had a school lasts eight semesters. Yeah. If you've gone to four semesters of it already. Yeah. Now it only lasts four semesters. You, That's what you, I meant. Are you practicing at all? I'm admitted to the bar. Admitted. That means you passed. That means I passed the bar. Wow. So the bar is like sometimes is used as a slang term for the bar exam,、mm-hmm. and is sometimes used as a term for membership in the bar. Okay, now not doing bar shows and comedy. This is this a is law not bar. like this is legal in the world of legal stuff. Okay, yeah, yeah. 
So if you're an attorney, I am um, not an attorney. No, no, that's fine. No, no, you, the hypothetical you. Okay, in this situation. In this situation, we're one to be an see attorney. Th- there's the brains. Did that pick up my sigh? I hope that picked up my sigh. <laughs> Picks up everything. That's great. That's great. Uh, if if you're for someone who is an attorney, uh, the term admitted to the bar means a person who is allowed to practice law. Okay. Right. So anyone you're can anyone can represent themselves, but to represent someone else as a lawyer, mm. like it's like in the same way someone couldn't practice medicine without a license, that you couldn't practice law without a license. Can I practice medicine on myself? You know, I, who's going to stop you? <laughs> the pharmacist. <clears throat> well, the, you, you can't practice uh, prescribing medicine on yourself. That's that's a very very good point. Thank <laughs> the you. The pharmacist is the first line of defense against the uh, autodidact physician, but not the courtroom. <laughs> Anyone can. Be <laughs> yeah, well, that's own. the line, right? Is that uh, a person who represents themselves as a fool for a client yeah. is sort of the joke within the legal world, right? Yeah, that the, makes sort sense. of the the ma- aphorism or whatever. So, why did you? finish and not keep going being a lawyer making a lot of money well those are all different things uh but uh we were talking about sort of like uh decision points or turning or what was the term you used formative experiences. formative experiences and um i think i don't know that i would say necessarily formative experience but like a directing experience that i uh, an experience that shaped sort of the way other things in my life happened Mm -hmm. was who I roomed with my first year of law school. I roomed with, uh, it was, uh, I was in a dorm at NYU in law school student housing. Mm -hmm. And I had, uh, one roommate. I sorry. I had two roommates and two uh, You're in law school and you have to share a room with two other people. It's school and it's New York city. It's expensive and crowded. Uh, yeah, you know, I was living on Third Street and McDougal. Like, my window, I looked out, I could see Mamoon's. Nice. The falafel place on McDougal. I had, like, enough window that I could not... I didn't have enough window that I could see the comedy cellar. I had enough window that I could see Mamoon's. So close. So close. Anyway, um, so it was a three-bedroom, uh, because it's Manhattan and it's crazy expensive. And you could have gotten a two-bedroom, but it would have been more expensive. And I was like, fewer loans. That sounds like the thing. Right. Uh, so, uh, one of my roommates was auditioning for the law school's, uh, show. So I don't know how much you know about law within the world of law school. Is it Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross no. just over and over? Well, they do like a, like a, let's put on a show type show. Okay. And maybe if it was sales school, it'd be like a Glenn Gary thing, but they do like a, <clears throat> a let's put on a show show yeah. uh, thing. And you know how, like, the scholarly journals at law schools are called law reviews? Like, when Obama was at Harvard Law School, he was the editor-in-chief of the Harvard Law Review. Right. Right? So, at a lot of law schools, it, the, whenever the people who were there who were like, let's put on a show, put on a show, they call it the R-E-V-U-E, Law Review, R-E-V-U, like a musical comedy review. Right, right, right. Because it tracks so cleanly. It makes sense. as It's a, a nice play on words. Exactly. Uh, so... There was, and we would then, so as to differentiate it in writing, it's very clearly differentiated. But phonetically, audio, it doesn't come across at all because mm-hmm. it sounds exactly the same. 
and it would be a very misleading thing to tell someone i was involved with the uh with the law review mm-hmm. uh and they would be like oh that sounds very impressive and you'd be like no it means i'm throwing my life away <laughs> but the word sounds exactly the same right so we would sometimes we would pronounce it law review a to like with an accent a goo mm. on the second e so as to differentiate just for like humor and ease of use yeah um anyway so my first year of law school one of my roommates was going to audition for that and then my other roommate was like it'd be a fun thing if all three of us were in it and he sort of encouraged me to audition and i said i don't want to audition and he said, oh, we'll do a duo thing. It'll be fun. We'll do a duo thing. Do you audition for a play or are you putting on well, it's a musical own- comedy thing? Okay. So it's already scripted. So you're, <clears throat> oh, so the whole thing is it's, uh, written by the law school students and it's like, uh, they'll tell a story through various scenes that it's, uh, set at the law school or involves like lots of jokes about people at the law school. Yeah. Like the Dean is always a big character. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, and various professors will pop up and there will be, uh, scenes and jokes and, uh, uh, you know, a dozen or so songs, which are, we'll take a popular song and do a parody version of it, but with law school lyrics, you get to decide what you do. Well, so there is a, uh, that, so it's an organization that like does that at year after year after year. Yeah. And the, uh, there's a group of producers who are elected every year for to do it the next year. And then they, in the fall will choose writers. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's like an audition process to be a writer, which is ridiculous in a bunch of ways. Yeah. Aren't you supposed to be studying the law? (laughs) There's so many reasons it's ridiculous. Uh, so you'll, there's an audition process to choose to, to, to become a writer for that. And then if they choose, for the people they choose as writers, meet up and write a show. And they do that in the fall into January. Mm -hmm. And then they have like this original show. Uh, And then in January, they have auditions for the parts. And people audition and get cast. And then there's rehearsals. Yeah. In like February and March Mm -hmm. and April. And I mean, it's not like the only thing people are doing, but it's legitimately an activity. Yeah. And it sounds like it, it occupies a lot of it your time. It can occupy a decent amount of time. It can occupy a lot of your time if you want it to, or some of your time if you don't want it to. No one's like, I don't, I don't think to my knowledge, no one ever dropped out of law school. Just to do this. It, you, even if you <laughs> dropped out of law school to do this, you're like, you're not in law school anymore. How are you going to, how are you going to know what Professor Adler said? Yeah, right. Uh, right. So it's like, it's not supposed to mess up anyone's career at all in any way. But also the way law school is structured, uh, especially for like the kind of the fancier ones mm-hmm. is a little weird. NYU is a pretty fancy law school. It's, it's, as law schools go, it's on the fancy side. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be falsely modest or anything, but I also don't want to be like, oh, about it either. So well, you should be proud. I mean, I could yeah, never get in. Yeah, not but, only could I not get in, I, even if I got in, I know I wouldn't be able to finish. You'd be surprised. You I legitimately would be surprised. Academically talented. There's at at NYU. It's harder to get in than it is to finish. The hardest part of graduating from NYU is getting into NYU law school. For, the hardest part of graduating from NYU law school is getting into NYU law school. Interesting. Okay. Did you want? We'll come back to the review. Uh, review a. Eh? Okay. Did you want to be a lawyer, like a practicing lawyer in the uh, courtroom? Well, there's different kinds of lawyer, and not all of them are in the courtroom. 
Mm-hmm. Um, when I was going to... But did you want to be in the courtroom? Because that's kind of a performer's role. Uh, um, it was more what I knew than anything. It was more what I was aware of than other things. Right. But um, I guess the way I would put it is I didn't grow up having a passion to be an attorney, mm-hmm. but I figured you got to have a job. And I was pretty good at like logical reasoning. Yeah and uh analysis and stuff like that job equals money money equals rent and food yeah that yeah, kind yeah. Of- sustenance is yes. the uh the paul f Tompkins line about it and so you gotta have you gotta pay the bills for what in some way and it seemed like so when i was in college i was on the de- speech and debate team mm-hmm. and so there's a, some of the same a lot of the same skills and like when you're a sophomore you look at the seniors and you're like, oh, uh, the guy who was the guy who was head of the speech and debate society the year before you got here, like he ended up going to law school. He went to like Yale Law School, and the person who, when you're uh, <clears throat> a junior, uh, when you're a sophomore, like is head of the thing, like they go to like U of T Law School, and the person when you're a junior, who's head of the thing, when when you're a junior, the person who's head of the thing, she went to Yale Law School. The year I graduated, uh, another person, I the, and I applied to like NYU, another one of my friends from the speech and debate team, like got into Harvard Law School. Well, have you, have you thought of this before? So it just, uh, there was a lot of track to it where if like you didn't have a specific thing you were looking to do, yeah, it felt very easy for that to be a perfectly fine next thing. Right. And I liked school. And so it was like, oh, more school. I'm good at school uh, was one of the things I was better at. Uh, comparatively than other stuff. And so it was like, it's a way to, you know, a little bit, you're putting a snooze alarm on being an adult. Staying in school. Because you stay in school instead of getting a job. Well, this, this harps on two themes that keep recurring in my life. One is how one person, one person's suggestion can make such a difference in your life, can change the course of your life. You're saying you went to law school because you were doing the debate team. You're good at it. You're good at school. So you don't, this, this is what you knew. Mm-hmm. Now, if one person would have said, hey, this is very similar to stand-up comedy. You're talking in front of people. You're basically trying to sell them on your point of view. Maybe that would have bypassed the whole law school well, for you. But that's One the person story. can make such a difference they can. in our lives. They can. And that's the story I am telling, actually, right now, uh-huh. right? Uh, which that didn't happen when I was at Rice, which is the, school, the undergrad school I went to. Uh, that didn't happen. It did not happen at Rice that right. I joined the stand-up community. There was not really a stand-up community at Rice. Did you realize at the time how similar it was being a, a, either in the, in the debate team or a lawyer? You're basically selling an audience on your point of view and your observations. Well, I always liked like jokes and humor and comedy and I always got tremendous juice and excitement out of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But no, I, this is the story I'm telling, okay. really. So... <clears throat> so the track, it felt like very natural for the next thing I did to be law school. It didn't feel like a passion, but it didn't feel like something I hated. And even people who don't have a calling need to eat. And if you need to eat, uh, getting to do that in a relatively high status, relatively high paying job where your parents are happy about it. And it sounds good when you tell it to people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you get to also like a lot of them end up living in like places like New York city. That all seemed pretty good. Yeah. So, uh, and then when I applied and like the one that I got the best, whatever aid package, whatever with was, was NYU. It was like, that sounds great too. And so that's how that happened. 
So then I was at law school and law school was like, what if college was like, had 80% of the fun drained out of it is what law school feels <laughs> like, uh, roughly. And there's val- there's good stuff in it, and there's a lot of things I got from it that I really appreciate and enjoyed, and there was engaging stuff there, but it's a, it's a pretty dull. Never passion. It never triggered any it, passions. It, it, I, a, a little bit here and there, but I don't want to... I'm not telling that story, and it's complicated and whatever. Okay. Um, but <clears throat> uh, I'm not hiding that story. It's, I, my, my representation to you is, if I told that story, you'd be like, well... I wish he hadn't told that story. <laughs> okay. Like, it's not so interesting for how long it We're going to get to your formative experience. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very close. I'm close. Okay. So, so then I was in the NYU Law Review A. Mm-hmm. What, what happened? So my, I wasn't even planning to audition for it. I was like, it was a thing I knew kind of was at the school, but I wasn't planning to audition for it. One of my roommates was definitely going to do it. And then my other roommate was like, audition, audition. I was like, I don't want to audition. He was like, well, hey, let's do a, a song together. Because the auditions were, you had to sing a song. And we'll do a duet, and it'll be just a fun thing that we do. Mm-hmm. And then if you don't get in, you don't get in. And also, you don't have to be on stage by yourself looking stupid. Right. Because uh, I was a little self-conscious about that, too, I guess. And I don't have... I honestly do not have a good singing voice. Uh, I have, like, an okay singing voice, but my range is, like, four and a half notes. Well, you, so, could, you could hold a tune? I have a very limited... Like, if if the tune has, like... You know, you know how people talk about Mariah Carey having a five and a half octave yeah. range? Yeah, yeah. I'm like that, but with five less octaves. <laughs> well, good thing it's a comedy <laughs> review. Thank you. Well, but there's songs and stuff. Uh-huh. And the audition was, you sing a song. Was R- how you Seriously? Audition. Yeah, yeah. And like, like that's literally the audition. Right. And so I was like, so he said, my roommate Lane, who like literally now works for the Department of Justice and has done that for many years. Uh, he was like, yeah, well, audition together will be fun. So I was like, okay. Uh, and then I don't remember exactly how it happened, although I, I probably suggested it. We ended up singing You're the Top, as it, which is an old Cold Porter duet. Okay. Which is a very, like, fun, comic, back-and-forth duet kind of song. And it was fun to, like, learn how to sing it. Even I enjoy singing it, even though I'm not good. Um, and it was fun to, like, learn the lyrics and learn how to do it as a performance and then to, like, ham it up with Lane, because I liked Lane and I thought Lane was funny. I still do. Mm-hmm. And... To, like, sort of do this fun, small thing together. And then we got cast in the show. And then I really enjoyed being in the show. Yeah. Uh, As an actor my first year. Law school being three years, right? Um, As I really enjoyed being in the show. And I was like, you know what? I want to... I want to. I was always like, I was definitely going to do it all three years. I was going to be in the Law Review show as, like, an activity for the next two years. So this is juicing you up more than the actual school. Definitely more excited than the actual school, for sure. Um, <clears throat> Which sounds like college. The, the extracurriculars are It's college more. without with 80% of the fund rate out of it. Right. It's really... Right. Uh, does, it's, it's, it's not that there are no interesting people in law school, mm-hmm. but percentage-wise, it's a lower percentage of the people who go to law school are interesting than the people who go to college. Mm-hmm. And the subject matter uh, is more technical and... You're doing it as a career now. Undergrad is, I mean, it has implications for career, but it's not a career. Right. And this is, you're in your career now. Yeah. And everything you're doing right now, a little bit, especially your first year, uh, is sort of shaping where your sort of career goes. Yeah. Um, 
And so then, so, but I really liked being in the Law Review show. So I was, I did that my first year. And then my, I was going to be like, I thought to myself, my second year, I'm going to be, a, I want to be a writer on the show because I want to be more involved with it. And I want to be involved with it in the fall in addition to the spring. And that seems fun. Um, now, you didn't do any theater in high school? Um, our high school had a very limited theater program. Uh, and I was never really involved with it. It, I liked theater. I enjoyed theater. I enjoyed watching theater. Even when I went to at New York, like my, one of my, like there were like two applications with NYU. There was like, uh, an early application. And then there was like an application where they were sort of considering exactly how much aid they were going to give me. Right. And the second application like had a little more room for like personality and style and mm. flair or whatever. And like, even in that, like I talked about liking New York's theater community and that being an appealing part of coming to a place. like Was New that York. true or are you? It was legitimately true. Okay. Um, and so, so I was like, that was one of the things I was excited about was the raw volume of culture that is New York city. It's l literally the reason I am still here. And you, you grew up in Maryland, but yeah, yeah. where is Rice University? Rice is in Houston, Texas. Oh, okay. And Rice was uh, where I went because Rice... Houston is where I went because Rice was there. Okay. I liked Rice fine. I, I have very fond memories of Rice. I like Houston fine. Houston is an underrated city. It genuinely, people don't give Houston the credit it deserves. But uh, I, I didn't have any ties to Houston. It's just Rice was a good school that uh, for various fluky reasons, it was a lot cheaper to go to than other selective schools. Why did you want to go to Rice well, that, that far? For law? No, 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 no. So Rice was a good school, like in a like US News and World Report top colleges. Right, right. Uh, Not know, good party school, just good school <clears throat> school. Like when your dad says it's a good school, yeah. how your dad means good school. Yeah. Uh, not how your dealer means it. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not your dealer again one's dealer wait you know my dealer i don't i don't know i don't know gary I, <laughs> this is a podcast so i don't want to say a name that then we're gonna have to bleep that's true. uh but um we're on a seven second delay it's okay. oh thank god thank god i feel like i'm talking to ryan seacrest I, 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 we're actually on like a probably a two-week delay so <laughs> that's that's nice that's a good joke i like that uh no so um so i went to rice because it was a good school and it was a relatively small school. I grew up in a small town. The town was about 30,000 people. Mm. My high school was around 1,500, not even 1,500. I want to say 12 or 1,500 people, maybe. Now, how close to D.C. were very you? Very far from D.C. There's a very okay. common misconception about Maryland. Yeah. And an understandable one. Mm -hmm. So, Maryland as a state, one way to think about it, it has eight Congress people, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, Sounds like a lot for a small... Well, it's, it's a small-ish state size-wise, a yeah. little bit, but... It also, it goes from, it touches the Atlantic Ocean, and it also touches West Virginia uh, and the, like, far end of Pennsylvania, basically. Okay, so you weren't surrounded by law and politics. Where I grew up in Maryland was a small town on the eastern shore of Maryland. Mm -hmm. Salisbury, Maryland is the name of it. And Salisbury is a town of 30,000 people. The, lar the city larger than Salisbury, if you want to go to the city, the once a unit of city larger than Salisbury from Salisbury, yeah. it takes two hours. Okay. It is not close to larger cities. Right. It is two and a half hours to Baltimore. It is three hours to DC. It is like three, three and a half hours to Pencil to Philadelphia. It is I'm maybe two and a half, two fifteen to Wilmington. And if you want to go to Norfolk or Virginia Beach, it's two hours in the other way. So there's a bunch of cities that 
Like, if you were trying to go there, you could go there. But it's not near anything, like, for daily living purposes. Right. So what? So attracted- going to a small college was appealing to me. Oh, Which okay. is the reason I was saying that. Yeah, you wanted to go to a small college. A relatively small college. Rice is about 2,600 undergraduate. That's very small. Within Division One, it's really small. Yeah. Especially. And so, like, most of the places I applied to, I applied to Dartmouth, I applied to Amherst, I applied to Swarthmore, I applied to Rice, and then my safety was St. Mary's College of Isn't Maryland. Isn't Amherst a pretty big college? No, Amherst is a well-regarded school. In the way your dad and not your dealer would say. Yeah. Although maybe your dealer. I'm sure there's. I'm sure there are people there who party. But um, <clears throat> Amherst is like a, like a liberal arts college as opposed to a university. Why did you want to stay small coming from small? Because I was in a small, so I was like used to small. So right. I wanted to go to a good place, but I also wanted to go to a place that wouldn't be like overwhelming. Right. Okay. Um, and so that was, so those were the, and also Rice was because it, this again, this gets sort of the technical side of things, but Rice had a lot of oil money. Mm-hmm. in the the behind it in the founding of it and establishment sure, it's of it. in houston yeah yeah yeah. and uh because of that it had a lot of wealth to a level where its endowment was so large that it was able to excuse me sorry sorry about that um it was rice <laughs> listeners just threw up in their mouths <laughs> I, th- I thought it turned my head away i hope i hope it wasn't too audible i'm sorry i should have done it farther away um <clears throat> Anyway, apologies to you listeners. Uh, Rice was uh, uh, about $10,000 a year cheaper Uh than Dartmouth and Amherst and Swarthmore, which were all very good schools. But my dad, uh, who was uh, an upper middle class person. What does he do? He's retired now, but he was a a doctor. And uh, who uh, was willing to pay for college to a certain extent, Mm -hmm. but was not willing to like... If he looked, he, and he wanted his son go, to go to a good school, and it was very nice of him to, to want that and to pay for it, which he was very nice and paid for college. With parents as a doctor, does he did he pressure you growing up to be a doctor or a lawyer? Um, yeah, I think there was an ambient pressure to succeed in the abstract. Well, he set but the there bar. Was, there was that. never a my son will be. There was never a my son will be a doctor uh-huh. element to it. And I was always like. The part of me that was self-conscious about things going wrong was like, well, if you screw up as an attorney, people lose money. Uh, but if you screw up as a doctor, people die. Yeah. And so there's a, it felt like lawyer felt better than doctor in that way to a certain extent. Anyway, uh, so, but I wasn't locked into lawyer at that point in time. Right. Uh, or any one thing in specific. Uh, <clears throat> well, you said Rice attracted you because it was a small school, but what? But also because it was $10,000 cheaper than other good small but schools. But what about, what were you? And so that was a very good factor for my dad, who then pushed very strongly for me to go to Rice over Amherst or Dartmouth or the other places. But like what that. did you want to study? I mean, when I was in high school looking at college? Yeah. Um, I mean, it sounds like you searched for colleges based on uh, population. <laughs> not exclusively population. I was looking, there's a lot of good schools, Gary. And so within good schools, like but I like applied for, for what for, for to study what law? Well, liberal arts, liberal arts. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. yeah if you're studying liberal arts, then it's whew, huge field, right? So you sort of like you want to have uh, you're sort of you want to figure out what you're going to do there, right? A little bit is what the idea was. Yeah, like I wasn't like going to like uh, heating and air conditioning repair school. And again, this is not in any way to mock or diminish right. people doing that kind of thing. But you're not exactly sure at this point what you want to do. Yeah, I was, you know, 17. Right. 
Um, and I like, I liked my chemistry. I thought for a while, I thought I was going to major in chemistry and it was what it turned out was, uh, the best teacher at my high school was a chemistry teacher. Right. And I liked that class so much. I thought I liked chemistry. Right. But you just but liked I, the teacher. <laughs> I, and he was good enough that I did like chemistry, but it was, didn't really last beyond him. Well, it's so like, like when I got to college, I ended up really liking history. Yeah. And so I majored in history and then I majored in economics because my dad thought it was very practical um and it was sort of a it wasn't that hard for that to be a double major although i was not as excited about the economics major by the end of it yeah um well i always say it's a teacher it's so much dependent on the teacher a good teacher can make a bad subject interesting yes oh absolutely bad teacher can make a really interesting subject boring yes also very true yeah and this really at, at a young age impressionable age it really kind of guides our life it can, especially yeah. if we don't realize that distinction. Exactly. Well, yeah, when you're yeah. 16, and 17. I, I, like, I didn't realize that until after I decided when I was in college not to major in chemistry anymore. Yeah. Like, I went to college thinking I was probably, I was, I liked movies a lot, and I was thinking about, like, film, although Rice is not a good place for film. Uh, but not a bad place, but it's also like, you're just sort of like, you go to a school that has a lot of different options in a lot of different ways, and you meet people, and you sort of figure it out. College was sort of where you figured out what you wanted to do after college, was the idea. Right, but traditionally, well, we're supposed to know growing up. beforehand. I mean, there's ways to do that. With liberal arts, it matters a little bit less. Yeah. And I, my feeling, honestly, about a liberal arts degree to a certain extent, and honestly, most bachelor's degrees, obviously, there's technical ones where, like, um, I now know computer programming. Mm -hmm. And I can, I am good at computer programming or there's like, I now know chemical engineering and I am good at specific right. things. You're learning a specific. So I make, so there are certain, there are certain school, certain jobs and degrees that are vocational in that way. Yep. And again, this is in no way am, am I meaning this to diminish. No, I didn't, any, I didn't sound like that. Some, some people, I get self-conscious about talking egghead stuff. Uh -huh. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, and I, so I don't want to be doing it in a way to exclude people. Um, and sometimes people get resentful, so I don't want I don't want that. You no, know, if you, if you're shaming a plumber, you're kind of a fool because it's a shitty thing to do. And also, plumber's a solid job, making a decent Absol living, better than I am. Yeah, uh, probably. Uh, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to do that kind of thing. There's definitely part of me that really enjoys the egghead stuff. Yeah. And every now and then I, you know... It comes with the... Uh, I celebrate... A lot of times I want to have that impulse to celebrate that. And then a lot of times also sometimes I can get uh, anti-people who aren't celebrating that. But more in a like, enjoy this cool thing kind of way. Which is more oblivious to the fact that some people just don't want to. Uh, if, if you think of Egghead as a lifestyle, yeah. it becomes much more palatable. Yes. Um, it is. It's, it's a style. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the way some people are really into the Cleveland Cavaliers, but I, and I think uh, that other shows, people like crossword puzzles. You know, it's right, you know. right. And I think that shows in your comedy, which is why your comedy stands out because well, it's I, a little highbrow. I, but I hope it also isn't leaving people out. No, I, I want it to be smart without excluding people. Right, but you don't want to dumb it down and cater to a, yeah, a low I, denominator. Yeah, and look, I have jokes that are dumb, and I like jokes that are dumb, mm -hmm. and I'm not trying to. But mm -hmm. I, if a joke can be smart and dumb at the same time, that's more. Right. That's more exciting. That's brilliant. It can be, for sure. <laughs> that's one of the things why, it's one of the reasons Monty Python's so good. Yeah. Um, okay. <clears throat> so, so I'm at, uh, I went to Rice because Rice was a good school, at quote, quote marks around good school. Yeah, and you're, and you're, you're figuring out what you want to do with your life. And then, so I was, there, it's, 
the temperament that I am, it's not surprising that I end up my personality and all those things. It's not surprising. I ended up in speech and debate. Uh huh. Yeah. I'd considered being part of the theater thing there. Mm -hmm. And that was seemed kind of fun, but it also seemed, well, that's a whole thing, but I ended up, it's not so weird. That Less once practical. I, were you going to say? No, it, it's a whole thing. Um, it seemed like you got with, when you were doing speech and debate, you got to be performing every weekend. And with the theater, you got to perform two weekends a year. Right. Right. There's like a, there's a weekend in fall where your show was on and there's a weekend in spring. And then before that, you were just practicing the thing. I did that in high school. I was in a uh -huh, sure. mo model Congress, they called it. Oh, okay. And you, we traveled around to different high schools and You did it like every weekend. Every weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was so fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it also showed me how much like bureaucracy and BS and all that is involved in government. Oh, for sure. There's a, you, there's a lot, my hat, I tip my hat to, to people who can handle dullness and tedium. Yeah. Those are valuable People just skills. talking to use up time. Sure. Playing games with important issues. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. But yeah, public speaking so, so that, comes in handy. That, but so doing that as opposed to doing the putting on a show where it's like the shows of one weekend of the semester and then the other 10 weeks before that are like prepping for it. Mm -hmm. Seemed fun, but not as concentrated. Yeah. It seemed like, let me have 10 meals as opposed to one meal a little bit. Right. That's probably not the best metaphor for an overreader <laughs> to accidentally make. Well, uh, I want to talk the, about that as listen, well. I don't, but you don't? Uh, I, I, I didn't come here thinking, let's, let's get into that. Okay. But I'm also not saying we can't. Anyway, what I, just for the listener, uh, for those who are not familiar with me, I don't think this comes across in the sound of my voice, but I am an overweight person. And substantially so. And you're also tall. Uh, yeah, but that, that, that just means I'm overweight uh, across more inches. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, anyway, yes. uh, but th that's all to the side. So, so it's, it, having gone to Rice, it's not weird that I ended up doing speech and debate. Yeah. But once I was at law school, it was kind of a fluke that I ended up being in the law review show. Mm -hmm. But once I was in the law review show, we're talking about sort of formative paths or moments, right? Yeah. Once I was in the law review show, it made a lot of sense for me to keep being in it. Mm -hmm. And once I kept being in it, it made a lot of sense for me to audition for it as a writer. And this is the thing. So I auditioned to be a writer my second semester, my second year of law school. Law school's three years, right? Um, and it's a, this is a ridiculous thing about NYU um, <clears throat> or NYU law. The writing submission process is a blind application where they you submit a, your application you can do whatever you want. Some people do scenes. Some people do like a fake parody of a song. Yeah. That kind of thing. Uh, the judges are blind. So not like literally, but no, no, no. So you submit a, a thing. Yeah. And then one of the producers, one of the the producers have a person who's not a producer, mm -hmm. uh, take the submissions from people and replace the names with numbers. Right. And then the group of producers, which I was in the producing group, my third year. Yeah. Uh, the group of producers has a meeting where they they have read all the submissions and they talk among themselves who the writers should be based on the submissions right. without knowing the names of the writers. And then those people, they say, okay, we're going to have these numbers be the writers. And then the person they gave those numbers to, like, tells them what those names are. And then they tell the writers. Right. So they choose the best numbers. Is the idea. Yeah. <coughs> 
sorry, sorry. Sorry about and that. I'm, I'm assuming you got chosen. I did get chosen my second year. And then also my third year uh, as a writer. And it's a delicate thing when you're a producer choosing your own thing as a writer. Yeah. Because you want to not be like saying, hey, this one was me, guys. Let's pick this one because it was me. Right, right. But at the same time, because that's not sporting. But also, like this, these are people who've known me for a year or two years and they know my style. Right. And so, like... Uh, one of the other writers on the Law Review show, uh, who is now uh, been a writer for Family Guy for a number of years, uh, is a woman named Cherry Chief. Is a very funny woman. Um, who also abandoned her law degree. She abandoned it even quicker than I did. Uh-huh. Uh, but so Cherry and I were both producers our third year. And we also knew from Cherry's style which one was Cherry's probably. But we all pretended we didn't. No, because right. it was also a good one, and we liked Cherry, and we wanted the song to be in there anyway. Anyway, That's also a big compliment if your, your style, your voice is unique enough that it could stand out. It, it, it's, 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 it's a thing where you're like not sure what it is, but it's like, I, I know Cherry, and this, this mm-hmm. reminds me of Cherry. Yeah. Or like, I know Jay, and this reminds me of Jay. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, uh, so, <laughs> so when I was in... My junior, my second, my second year of law school, I submitted this blind application process where they take a whatever percentage, and I was one of the percentage that got taken. And uh, then the first day of writers' meeting, where like all their sort of like we don't have a script yet, like is like what's going to be the story for the dean this year, or like the first year it was like uh, there were two law students who like hated each other beginning. And then they, the Dean took them on a trip throughout law schools over time. Uh-huh. And it turned out that they liked each other romantically by the end. Uh, and so like, it's not the, I'm not knocking that show, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a people in a school putting on a show. Now, wait, were you writing comedy at this point? I was not writing comedy. I was, I was sort of aware of, you know how you'll have stories that like you're if you're at a dinner party or in a conversation and someone mentions thing X, you're like, oh, I can tell a joke that's I can say a thing that's relevant to thing X, mm-hmm. and I've said it other places and people have laughed when I've said it at other places and yeah. I think it's funny, and this person said thing X, so I'll say this thing, and people will laugh and then I would do that and they would right right and so I had a few things I had some things like that yeah. And it started to like be aware of having stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also was also throughout this time finding law school to be, well, not terrible. Not, I didn't hate law school, but I, it felt not exciting. Were you doing okay? Grade wise? I was doing fine. Grade yeah. wise. Uh, but I wasn't, I was not setting the world on fire. I was, I was doing like above average with, in a way that, that you wouldn't get prizes for. Does that make sense? It makes sense, but it's also pretty impressive for someone that's not really impassioned by it. I wasn't doing that above average. Okay. Like, there was never a point where they were like, and the summa cum laude is what Jay Welch was. Right. We weren't doing that. <laughs> but there was a, I was, like, not at risk of... Getting like, the boot getting out. Getting boot out. But yeah. it, it's, it's hard to get fired from NYU Law School. So... <clears throat> well, you have to maintain a minimum GPA. But imagine. there's also a pretty strict curve. Uh, okay. Right. So like if every class, every, every sort of year at NYU was 400 students roughly. And your first year you're divided into four sections. Yeah. So you have a required curriculum your first year where you don't choose your curriculum at all. Well, it's also in their best interest to not have people flunk out. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 
so but so you would have a class of a hundred people that you took contracts with mm -hmm. and those would be the same hundred people you took property with and civil procedure and torts uh with uh, so they're just the same group of people that was your world was those hundred people basically and your four teachers and then some legal writing stuff on the side and at, at, at there would be one test that would be your entire grade Wow. At the end of the, so there's no quizzes over the course of the term. There's just one, no papers, especially your first year. That sounds like my style. There's papers in legal writing you would have to do, but that's pass fail. Okay. Um, but in the law school class, in the big classes, it's just one test at the end. Yeah. And out of those hundred students, like there's very strict ranges where it's like, Three to seven get an A. These aren't the exact numbers, but to give you a sort of sense of it, it's like three to seven students will get an A. Right. There's no A pluses. And I think that's right. It's been a little bit. I think there's no A pluses. It's like three to seven students will get an A. And then seven to 12 students will get an A minus. And then uh, 12 to 15 students will get a B plus. And then 60% of students will get a B. Wow. And then... 10% uh, of students will get a B minus and you can give out C's if you want to mm. and you can give out D's if you want to, but you can't give out that many this is, this and you is can give out F's if you want to, but it can't be that many and they got to really stink. Yeah. And so it's like, it's very hard to get, if you are one of the worst students in the law school, if you're in the, if 95% of the law school is doing better than you, you'll, you're still getting B minuses. This sounds like a school for me. It's right. Yes. Getting in is the hard part, but once you're in, it's not that. It's, do you, do you staying feel, in is not that hard. Do you feel like college is a bit of a scam in that? Now, being way? a star at it, like really doing well, getting those A's is hard. Sure, yeah. There's an absolute meaningful differential between the A and the A minus, and the A minus and the B plus, and the B plus and the B, and so on and so forth. But sort of not being noticed was pretty easy to do in law school. Mm -hmm. So, so that was to your point about that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so when I was in law school uh in, in fact like one of the parody songs we did uh you know there was that in sync song it's gonna be me how's that go i don't remember like it's there's it a it's like it's gonna be me oh yeah, yeah 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 uh we did a parody version of that again this is not me trying to wow you yeah oh no this listener. is just this is what diverted you from your course yes well this is what changed what the course was yes uh the there was so we did a parody of it called it's gonna be a bee because <laughs> like whatever you do you're gonna get a b oh well um so so when i was writing the show the first day we met to be writers to write the show and i was in a room with like eight other people or nine other people whatever and we're all just sitting around trying to toss ideas around with each other um that moment that night was so fun and that night was the night I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. The first night of being in that room doing that was like, this is what. I, and so that was the first day I realized law school was a mistake. Wow. Was And how much time had wasn't you? wasn't from being in the Law Review show. It was from being in the Law Review writer's room. Right. Which is in, by that point, I'm in my third semester of six semesters. Was it the creative juice that you felt? <clears throat> it was really exciting. It was, I enjoyed being funny. I enjoyed cracking jokes. I enjoyed watching other people crack jokes and hearing them and trying to top them mm -hmm. and working together to see if I could take their thing with my thing and make it a better thing or a bigger thing. Mm -hmm. 
So that was the process. Yeah. And that was really exciting and invigorating. That's a very writer's room kind of thing. It's a very writer's room kind of thing. And yeah. I really enjoyed it. Um, not the, I didn't, and before that, to be in that writer's room, I had had to write a sample. Right. Uh, like an audition. And I l wrote that audition. And that wasn't where I thought, oh, this is what I have to do for a living. Right. It was being in the room. Right. It was actually I liked, doing I didn't it. hate, with writing in general, part of you likes it and part of you hates it. And then you like that you've done it and you're proud of it. Right. But you also feel really stupid all the times during making the thing when you're not making the thing better. You're just failing to make the thing better. You feel really stupid in all of those moments. Yeah, but there's also differences of there's writing alone. Yeah, yeah. And then writing in a writing's, writer's room where you have people trying to help it and it goes around in the circle and everyone's sure. punching it up. And it's also one of the reasons why it's more fun for me to do panel yeah. almost than it is to be on stage by myself. Mm. And I enjoy being on stage by myself and telling jokes on stage by myself, working with an audience. But panel where you get to just only pop in. Right. Where you get to be the star only when you choose to be yeah. a little bit and you're for, operating off of a stimulus and you're operating off a stimulus and you're in that sort of space where there's the energy of all the sort of people sort of working together to do this that is the best panel yeah. is the best form of that and this is kind and of the, writer's room is a little has got a little bit of panel to it ab absolutely relative to the other and this is the difference of why some people which that is are, that's the thing i only thought of in this conversation just now well, that's why we're doing this there we are we're here to open our horizons thank and you that's why people that are funny with their friends mm -hmm. when they think that they could do stand-up they realize it's a totally different thing because there is no stimulus to operate off of they have I mean, to, depends on to, how you're doing it but very often to, yes yeah you have to create the stimulus uh -huh. and then react on it sure all by yourself sure and you can work with the audience in various ways to do things crowd along work. those lines among them crowd work for yeah. sure um and the audience is one of the tools that stand-up can work with in that way mm -hmm. um but so for me the formative moment, I don't know. If, I don't know the word formative necessarily because I sort of, sort of, some part of me feels like you're the person that you are, and you just sort of learn about circumstances that fit with that mm -hmm. more than you being formed by the moment. Although I'm sure there are ways in which people are formed. I'm not saying they're not. Well, because you're you're the person that you are in that moment. I but I was not formed by being in that writer's room. What happened was that I learned that I had previously been well suited to that form. Mm. that night right so i was it's not that either being told to go to the audition being encouraged to go to the audition was a formative moment or that being in the writer's room is a formative moment but both of those were very key inflection points towards me figuring out oh this is what i want to do i believe that we're always forming okay yeah we're always changing and you might have a you might leave here later and something might happen that by, might be another formative experience to you that might take you on a different course as well hey, who knows yeah we're all leaves in the wind you never know we're constantly evolving sure sure who knows I hope so i hope so you you already uh learned something new in this brief conversation uh, about myself by the way not yeah. to diminish learning new things about gary which i enjoy doing also no but i was but the stimulus that helped absolutely that. Yeah. absolutely the talking cure <laughs> um yeah so so that to me was a very important moment and then if I had just been in the Law Review show, I don't think that would have changed my decision-making process. But being a writer for the Law Review show 
changed my decision-making process about how much I valued the world of comedy. And then, so I wrote for the show and I did the show my second year. And then if you're at sort of the way things work at the fancy law schools, and and again, I'm trying not to be a snob about this, but it is a sort of snobby privileged kind of place. Um, I was the interview process for your summer between your second and third years uh, starts in August at the beginning of your second year. Mm -hmm. And you have that job lined up generally by like sometime in October of your second year for the summer between second and third years. And if you don't mess that job up, I can swear. I imagine. Oh yeah. yeah. If you don't fuck that job up. Yeah. Uh, over the course of the 10 or 12 weeks, you have that summer associate position. We'll bleep it out. It's fine. Either way. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm totally I, kidding. I relied on you, Gary. I relied <laughs> on you and you fucked me. Uh, no, uh, if you don't, if you don't fuck up your job as a summer associate yeah. at a big firm in private practice, if you assuming that's what you're doing, which not everyone does and not everyone wants to, but if you're going to go into private practice, which is sort of the default mode of the fancy law school mm-hmm. is to work as a junior associate at a big firm. Um, if you do that, uh, then uh, sort of you know where you're going to work two years before you work there. Really? Yeah. Okay. You, so, like, I the firm I worked at after I graduated from law school uh, was the firm I was a summer associate with. Right. And I was pretty sure I was going to be a summer associate with them in October before that summer. So, you had a law job. And I started working for them 23 months later full time. Wow. Like that's how like advanced tracked that was, right? And the for me to have failed, for me to have lost that job offer, yeah, before the day I started working for them in that September after I graduated law school. <clears throat> Wait, you did lose the job offer? No, I didn't. I didn't. Right. Okay. I, I got that job and I worked there for several years, uh, but for me to have had for them to have withdrawn that offer, right? I would have had to either screw up during that twelve week summer program which would be pretty hard to do. Yeah. Some people do it, but like it's like the kind of thing where the way you do it is by uh, blowing off a boss, like nakedly. Right. Right. Be, or like... Not showing up. Not failing to do an assignment. And they don't give you that many assignments, and they're not that hard, the assignments. Um, and they give you plenty of extra time to do them, and they're usually not that time sensitive. Or uh, showing up literally drunk to work. Right. Uh, and probably you would need to do that more than once or twice for it to be a real problem. Uh, so, like, you can mess up, but it takes a lot of work to mess up at the summer job. And to mess up, I already talked to you about how rigorous the curve was at yeah. NYU. So, it's really, it's hard to get an A, but it's really not that hard to get a B. If you do, like, the bare minimum studying, right. and you get B minuses, people aren't going to love it, but they're not gonna, they're, once you're lined up, you're, they're not going to care too much, probably. So, even though you so got... So, your second and third years, yeah. if you're not messing it up, you right. kind of can do whatever you want. Like, you can go, go to class if you want to go to class. Don't go to class if you don't want to go to class. And look, there's ways you can be more impressive. You can build a better career for yourself. By like building a better resume for yourself. Yeah. There absolutely are ways to do but that. But you weren't working that hard. I wasn't trying to do that. Right. And that's on me in various ways. But, but it like doesn't I, matter. I, like there were there were people who graduated from my law school who like literally clerked for the Supreme Court, I believe. I think one or two did. And um 
they were people who had a hard second year of law school that involved a lot of work right. building that resume and a hard law, third year of law school doing a lot of work building that resume. So even though you but got bit... But you didn't bit, have to do it that way. Even though you got bit by the creative bug, mm-hmm. you kept going. To law school. And, and... Well, because I was already... I had already borrowed half the money I was going to oh, need to borrow. Right, right. Right, so my father was, was a doctor and... Yeah, he, he's got money. Why are you taking out loans? Well, so he's a doctor, but he also... There's limits on how much the doctors aren't doctors aren't like, you know, steel tycoons. Let's get your dad on the phone. Why is he no, making you take no, out no, loans? No, 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 no. The, my dad made reasonable choices. I'm not angry at my dad about any of this, nor should anyone be. Uh, he was very generous. Like parents don't have to pay for their kids to go to college, uh-huh. and he saved and was responsible. And I was very fortunate that I did not have to cover my own college expenses. Um. Uh, that my my dad I was I feel very appreciative of that, but he also said I did that for college, and I consider that my obligation to you. Mm-hmm. If you want to go to law school, I am be happy to support you emotionally oh, right, right, right. in that decision. But that is your decision, and you're an adult making that decision, and it is not my job to support that decision financially. Mm, right. And that was his position, and I didn't love that. That was his position. <laughs> Uh, but I also understood that was his position, and especially the older you get, the more reasonable that position and seems. And as a, as a parental strategy, it kind of worked because it made you stay with it because you had all this debt. Yes and no, honestly. Uh-huh. How, uh, no, how no? Well, it, it depends on who you're asking and how you're asking and all that. But if you didn't have my any biggest, debt. Gary, my biggest regret in life is that I didn't drop out of law school that semester. Oh, right. And I waited way too long after that to start doing comedy seriously. Yeah, why did you why did you keep going with it? Well, so cuz there's was, a stigma of quitting something. There's a little bit of a stigma of quitting something and you don't want to have that conversation with yourself. But also, I didn't hate law school as we said, right? I was pretty good at it. Yeah. I was getting some Bs and some B pluses is sort of where I was. Mm-hmm. Uh and B plus is like the sort of way it works out is like the B plus is like you're in the bottom half of the top half. Does that make sense? Yeah. Of the class? I mean, does it even matter unless you're graduating magna cum laude? Yeah, it kind of no doesn't matter no too much. Asking. If you're looking to like clerk for a judge, it could matter your... for something. They look, they, they're they looking for your grades more. They are, okay. I know like law firms are looking for your grades, but they're looking for your grades very early on. Mm-hmm. Right? And so they, they, they're making that decision about you two years before they hire you, kind of. So they don't have your second year grades or your third year grades to make Which that is why you could slack off then once right? you have it. It would be like if you were applying to colleges in the f- in like December of your sophomore year of high school. Right. And you found out you were getting into your college that you wanted to go to yeah. in April of your sophomore year. You're and all you have to do is not fail out of col- out of high school. Yeah. You're going to it's so much easier to coast your junior. You get senioritis just from April of your senior year when you get the acceptance yeah, letter, right? Yeah. yeah. Or that you, so if you imagine 2 years of that. Oh my god, right? So how long did you work in the law firm for? So I worked so so I didn't hate law school and I had $50,000 $50,000 of debt. That's already lo- already racked up from 3 semesters. Yeah. Uh, so I, I had a good, pretty good financial relationship financially deal with NYU to the point where it was less than it would have been at other places, but it was still Fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars for the first three semesters, basically, and then it was, <clears throat> which doesn't even really sound like that much to have a law degree. Well, it's not a law degree. Fifty thousand is not a law degree. It's three semesters of a law degree. 
Oh. Three semesters of a law degree isn't a law degree. You know how many semesters it is for a law degree? It's six semesters. Okay, so it's what you get so out of 100 So if you grand. went five semesters and yeah. you didn't get a law degree, yeah. they aren't going to hire you. You to to show up, you have to not mess up. But not right. messing up means get the degree. Right. So that's six semesters. So I was fifty thousand dollars into a hundred thousand dollars of debt. Right. I had a thing I was learning to do that I had spent, depending on how you count my speech and debate track in high school. You're almost like a guy in Vegas at the blackjack table. You're like, oh, I'm already in the in a 50. little bit. I mean, it's not exactly the same, but it's similar, right? So I'm fifty thousand dollars into a hundred thousand dollars of debt. I'm I already have the job lined up that's going to pay, that I know can pay for that debt. Right. In two years, mm-hmm. I don't hate law school where I am right now. I kind of like the school part. I was, and I have law review show that I'm enjoying doing. And so there's a little bit of let's put it on the credit card. I would say more than like being at the blackjack table yeah. a little bit. But also if I put it on the credit card. If I buy another $50,000 of law school... You get to do another law review show. I get to do another law review show. I get to do another (laughs) law review show. I get to be still living in New York and living this life in Manhattan, in Greenwich Village, which was where I was living, which is great, Mm -hmm. uh, that I am enjoying. Eating Mamoun's falafel. Sometimes, sure, Mm -hmm. sure. Uh, And uh, all sorts of uh, uh, the cool culture stuff of the city and i get to be in this world that i know and if i drop out of law school to do stand up to do some sort of whatever form of comedy that was right which i didn't really even realize what it would what it would be really at that point in time i would have no network in that i would be starting completely over mm-hmm. with kind of no money right because i'm borrowing the money to get the law school right yeah and i the i'm planning on paying it off with the job i'm gonna get at the big firm uh after law school that i have that lined up but i don't have it now right so and i was like pretty good at law and didn't hate it uh it was where i was so i was like well you try you're trying doing this thing try doing this thing right and see how this goes and also you know when you're in your early 20s you think you have more time than you have a little bit. And yeah. you, at that time, sort of do also have a little more time than you're going to have later. So you're not as aware of the limits of a resource in that way. Yeah. Uh, and so I was like, well, so you're trying to be, you were trying to be a lawyer and you're on this path and things are already, it would take a lot of rocking the boat to rock this boat. Mm-hmm. And the boat doesn't seem that bad. So try it and stay on it. And then... Uh, I did that, and over the time that I did it, it became less personally rewarding and right. a little less engaging. Now, you mentioned uh, Cherry, your your classmate yes. that went on to write for Family Guy. Yes, yes. At what point? Well, she knew she didn't want to be a lawyer. I I think if I if I understand it correctly, and I don't want to tell her story. No, I don't want to tell public. her story, but I want to tell uh, her story in relation to you. What did you ever because. Right there, you're at the same point in life, and she mm-hmm. decided to s- drop out of law school. No, she didn't drop out. Oh, did she, she finished finish? law school. She did finish. But after graduating, she went out to uh, Los Angeles to try to make it as a writer. Uh-huh. And she went at that, and she knew she wanted to do that and right. tried doing that and eventually succeeded. Um, and in a lot of ways, that was... But she had that single-mindedness that she just applied to making it in Hollywood. Right. And so she did. Um, 
well, not it's not as simple as that. But she also, you know, was, in addition to being hardworking, was very funny, and uh, you know had some luck along the way. Also, yep. as uh, not to diminish her her discipline or her her talent, also, which are both considerable. Um, but she she yourself- went she never pursued law as a career other than having gone to law school. It was amazing. Right. It was it was strange to us that she continued to be in law school for as long as she did. Right. Right. Do you see yourself in her at all? I, I mean, we're different people. What yeah. Do you mean? Well, because it's almost like you're seeing a reflection of yourself in a different path, but not that it matters. No, I, I mean, admire. Just... I really admire her decision, and I wish I had done that quitting law earlier because it would have saved me the years that I spent doing that. How long did you work in a law firm? Two years. So three years enough to pay back some of the loan. I imagine I was able to pay off the loans, and I was able to have a bit of savings. That sounds more practical, actually. <clears throat> and then the idea was that I will use that savings to start doing comedy, mm-hmm. and then surely I will have a job by the time the savings run out. I will get a job in comedy by the time the savings run out, which it turns out was optimistic. Yes. Yeah, comedy takes a long time. So now I, I ran out of the savings after a, a bit, and now I have a day job again. Which I, not to knock the day job, it's yeah. day jobs are again very respectable, and uh, you know you got to pay the bills somehow. How did you know you wanted to? You knew you, you enjoyed comedy writing. Yes, but I, did, I enjoyed comedy performing. Like I was, I enjoyed being on stage, being a ham on stage. But the light bulb mm-hmm. was being in that room. Yeah, being in that room feeling like you're part of a community riffing with other people that's so different than stand-up stand-up is such a solitary but at the same time stand-up is a thing you can be doing when you don't have any of the other versions of it right stand-up is the thing you can get in and go at right away and there is also by the way something very rewarding about that so another part of that story yeah which is doesn't change the shape of the story but does fill it out so NYU Law School, right, is in Greenwich Village. Yep. Uh, the main ba- the main building where most of the stuff is is on Washington Square South. Mm-hmm. Um, so close to all the comedy clubs. Very close to all the comedy clubs. Um, I was not going to the clubs a lot my third year, mm-hmm. but my third year, especially in the fall before Law Review show started, but also like Law Review was not like a forty hour a week job. It's right. a fun hobby. Yeah, people took it seriously. It was more expensive than most hobbies are. Most hobbies you aren't building. Uh, a piece of wood that's designed to look like the Scooby-Doo mystery machine <laughs> yeah. so that you can pretend to be Scooby-Doo uh, uh, who just recently enrolled in NYU Law School and now needs to solve the case of the disappearing dean. Right. And uh, you're also writing to such a particular <laughs> inside oh, baseball kind of... Oh, it's very inside baseball kind of... Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's, it's a, it is a show for people who are going to be like, yeah, Vice Dean Gillers is like that. All right. Uh, if you're not, it's a very specific audience. It's not going in your writing packet to uh, the late show. <laughs> it's it's perfectly. I'm not ashamed of it, but it's it's a thing for the law school. Yeah. Had you seen stand up comedy at this point? Yeah. Well, yeah, everyone's seen stand up comedy, but I also I'd seen some in the city. My third year of law school, I got really into the low budget comedy scene in New York and watching the alt scene in mm-hmm. New York. Bar shows, that kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. I was going to show places like Eating It on the Lower East Side mm-hmm. a lot. And uh, there were a lot of shows at the Village Lantern even then. Yep. A lot of independently produced shows I would go see there. I was there. I was not weird for me to be at the Village Lantern two nights a week or three nights a week. Just to watch. Just watching. And you, that was a lot cheaper to watch there than it would be at a comedy club where you got to pay $20 and two drinks. Yep. Where at the Lantern is five bucks plus whatever you, you drinks you choose to buy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was I was going to like Rafifi and shows like that and watching stuff like that, very actively looking at comedy 
that watching comedy that would go to like UCB yeah. and watch uh, um, so you, uh, uh, sorry, Ask Cat shows there. You saw a lot of so pretty was, famous was, comics. Oh, come absolutely. Up. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I saw, uh, yeah, I saw Aziz before anybody knew who he was, all that. Um, <laughs> I saw Aziz before he was a feminist. Uh, let alone after. <laughs> uh, I'm not trying to knock Aziz. Um, but, uh, now, can, can, when you saw him, can you tell he was going to be a stand-up? I was a little surprised by, like... No, I, I, when I saw him, he was doing stand-up. No, but like a stand-out stand-up. Uh, oh, sure, sure. I honestly did not see him... Like, there's people where you're like, you see them and you're like, I think that person's going to be a star. Right. Yeah. And there's people where you write them off, and yeah. there are people where you just see them and are like, "You like? I like that joke, or I didn't like that joke." And yeah. they were just another person. And they were perfectly good. I'm not knocking Aziz when I put him in that middle category. Mm-hmm. I don't mean that as an insult in any way. There's very few people where you're like, "Oh, I see that person. That's the one." Yeah. Um, and comedy- Michael Che is like a person where I saw them the first time I saw them. I was like, "That person is gonna be uh, famous." I think. Right. Well, he had kind of like struck like lightning right he was barely doing stand-up and then he was i literally saw him the first uh, according to michael at least uh he says i the i saw him the first night he ever did stand-up wow um and that night i was like this guy's gonna be really good Mm -hmm. Uh, i wasn't at the first time open mic he did but i was at the second open mic he did can you put into words what it was that you saw that made you think that about michael specifically yeah um or if that's too difficult anybody it's almost easier to do it about a specific person than it is about a general person. Okay. Right? So, <clears throat> oh, I accidentally knocked the microphone. That's why you heard a weird sound just then. Sorry. So, Michael Che was was very funny the first night. But he also, and I, 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 I got to be honest, I don't remember the joke specifically. But, yeah. uh, but he was also very comfortable being on stage mm-hmm. and comfortable in a way that made the audience feel comfortable. Right. And he was being insightful. His jokes had good points to them. Mm-hmm. And this was not just through the first night, but it was also the first, you know, few times in the first month and whatever I saw him. His jokes were smart and insightful. And they were doing that in ways that everybody, that were broadly understandable as smart and insightful, that people didn't have to be, you didn't have to be a, uh, a poindexter to understand why it was a good joke right. and to laugh at it. But he had these original ideas and these original takes on common issues. Not and, just black issues. Well, also, not just black issues, but also black issues. And But whatever issues he was talking about or whatever personal life stuff he was talking about, he was telling it in an engaging, persuasive, funny way where you hadn't heard it quite that way before. Mm-hmm. But at the same time that he was doing that, he was also being genuinely black in like a cultural way. Mm-hmm. Like he was like, you know, when people talk about like the Oreo, the idea of an Oreo phenomenon of a person being black on the outside and white on the inside, which is a distasteful term. I don't like that term. Right. But you understand sometimes when people are talking about that, some of the people that they're talking about. Yeah. Um, as a, like a cultural style thing to the extent that there's a culturally black and a culturally white thing. Right. Michael Che reads as culturally black. Mm-hmm. As like as an American black experience, right? In a way that like Obama doesn't, right, right, right. You yeah. know, yeah. Like if Obama rapped, it would be weird, yeah. 
right? He's too scholarly, which is <laughs> yeah, also it, gets into. And them. it's not to say that he that makes him white versus black. Exactly. But, but like, if, he, if Obama talked with like a street patois, right, it would be weird. Yeah. Um, would you say that Michael Che just had some sort of he, star like, quality, some yeah, a little quality? bit of star quality? But he also so he had this way he was genuinely himself, yeah, and the way he was genuinely black in a like from the black American experience way. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the same time, he was not intimidating to white people. Right. So like white audiences would see him and find him relating and charming and engageable and, and, and not just, it didn't, it did not at all feel like it was for black people mm -hmm. and uh, exclusively at least. And not that it isn't for black people, but it, it was a uh, it was a black person that a white person I say it I mean he in the performance I'm not trying to I mean, he was a black person who was black in a way that white people found black yeah but also in a way that white people did not find threatening right which is a really unfair thing that white people do with the idea of blackness mm -hmm. is find it threatening it's why Philando Castile is dead. <laughs> Um, also, and why a lot of times officers are more scared of black people than they are of white people. Right. And they shouldn't feel that way. And it's weird that there's a siren happening right now. <laughs> well, uh, every time you say black person, a siren just starts to ring. Man, Ridgewood has changed. <laughs> uh, anyway, but so, so it's, it's hard to be both of those things at the same time. Right. And to me, and I'm not like an expert or anything about this, but I try to think about it some... To me, the last person who felt like an authentically black person mm. who was dealing with black issues and race issues and general issues, all all black race issues and general issues, both. Yeah. Or I should say, I say general, I should say non-racial issues, uh, where he's dealing with both kinds of things and he's dealing with both of them from a black perspective, but also in a way that white people are not feeling uncomfortable with or intimidated by or left out by or scared by, or alienated by, was Chappelle. And so it, he seemed like, mm. when I saw him for the first time, it felt like, oh, this is the next, not that he's exactly Chappelle in any way, because he's not, but it felt like that space he was occupying. Right. Like Hannibal, we all think is a star now, and he is a star now. Um, and he was a star then, people were talking about him then. But he also, and he is genuinely black, and genuinely not intimidating, but it also, he's got this sort of weirderness, it's more eccentricity to him. Yeah, yeah. That feels more idiosyncratic, that Che doesn't have as much of that. I think, I hope Michael Che is never listening to this. <laughs> not that I'm ashamed of anything I'm saying, but it's got to be so weird to hear someone talk about yourself this much. And it's not, uh, if you're out there listening, Michael, I'm a huge fan, of course, as you know. And how gross is it that I framed it that way also? <laughs> and uh, hire me to write for SNL. He he's gets plenty of applications. This I'm is sure. not how I'm But Speaking of, you must have a, a pretty good writer's packet. I would like to think so, but it's it's hard out there. Now, do you, you submit to these things constantly? I, not as much as I should. It's, okay. hard, it's hard to do it. Uh, it's hard to hear about it in time. Right. And it's hard, about, it's hard to have the time to do it during the window where you hear about it in how, order to do a good one. But does, I, I have submitted them and I find the process of writing them isn't fun, but the process of having submitted them is generally, genuinely pretty fun. I've gotten some, I haven't gotten hired, but I've gotten good feedback a couple of times. And even that is pretty rewarding. And that's something I would like to have see happen 
Although, who knows? And the packet is constantly evolving. I mean, you're constantly adding new well, jokes. It's not, no, it's not that. Because every show has its own packet. Okay. Right? So, like, a little bit, if you're doing... If you were doing a Jimmy Fallon packet... Right. And there was a James Corden packet... Mm-hmm. Like, there's going to be ways in which those two are not that different. Right. Because you're writing in their voice. But there's also going to be ways where they're different. And if you were doing a Seth Meyers one, would be different than a... One for, like, some true TV show. Or whichever... Every show is its own show, and every show has its own specific things. If you had your choice of show, which one would it be? Uh, you know, there's a lot of good ones out there. I'd like one of the good ones. Yeah. You have a packet for Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy Fallon and all that? For each of them? No, I, I mean, I don't currently have a packet for those. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, it's more like a make as you order kind of thing and it's also something where i honestly should be doing more work on that kind of thing right for people that aren't familiar with the process it is no excuse to say that thinking about the president has crowded out a lot of my inner life in the last year and a half yeah it's a lot there's a constant news barrage which is again this is not an excuse it is uh, an explanation of why i haven't done more and again no defense so if you're looking to hire someone who will yell about the president, I'm here, America. Yeah, I find it. Uh, <laughs> there's so much to yell about, and then you want to make it humorous. It's very hard to do both. Yeah. And it's also like hard to do both in a way that isn't the same joke as other people. I don't know if you saw the, the day we're recording this, but there was a thing in New York Magazine today um, <clears throat> about uh, a particular late night joke about the events of the day mm-hmm. that was narrow enough that it was basically the same joke. Oh, the, each late night person. It wasn't like it. the exact same words, right? But it was the same basic joke. Yeah. And five different late night hosts told it yesterday. <laughs> like, yeah. Was last it a play night. on Stormy? I don't. I don't. I didn't read the whole thing. Okay. Uh, so I couldn't. I couldn't do the joke. But uh, I mean, when you have ten late night shows and they're all talking about Donald Trump, yeah, and they're all talking about the same sort of specific events of the day. It's not weird that that kind of thing happens. Mm-hmm. I'd yeah. say, you know, people who are less in the thing sometimes think that uh, people, anyone who writes the same joke independently stole it from whoever wrote it before them, and that's not how that is. No, there's a collective mind. And there's also, like, sort of only, there's a certain number of takes that are reasonable takes. Yeah. Have you heard, this is hearsay, I don't know if this is true, but... uh Someone had a story about what Nick Kroll was looking for in a girlfriend at a certain point in time. Uh-huh. I don't remember when. I've I've not talked with Nick Kroll about this, but this is the story I've heard someone say about, heard someone say, it was about whatever. And he said what he's looking for in a girlfriend. And I, again, this is not saying that he doesn't have whatever happy relationship he's in now. Whenever this was in the past. Um, he, Nick Kroll said, uh, what I'm looking for in a girlfriend is... I just want someone who can go from A to C. Uh-huh. Does that make sense? Right. So A to B is the most obvious step. Yeah. And a writing. Yeah. Yes. And then A to C mm-hmm. is the second most. It's like, right. You can assume that the next step is B and then the step after that is C. So someone who can go from A to C. Right. The less obvious. Less obvious and, and a little more step. reasoning involved. Yeah. It, at the same time, if you're if so if you're doing monologue jokes, a lot of it's A to B, right. and a lot of it, especially when you're doing mass monologue jokes, when you're doing them every night, yep. f- based off the news for an audience of people who some of them are learning the news from you telling these jokes, uh, right? If you're doing that, those jokes for that audience, you know, it's gonna it's not gonna get crazy and insane and weird most of the time. Mm-hmm. 
So an A to B, A to C. It's not that weird that there's that duplication. It's also interesting to me that you have to be a little bit emotionally removed. Like if you care too much about the news and you're just appalled, mm. it's very difficult to make it into humor because there's too much emotion. It can be too. That's it's figuring out. It's tricky. A thing to have a joke about is different from figuring out the joke. And then figuring out a joke is different than figuring out the best version of that joke. Yeah. And then figuring out the best version of that joke is different from figuring out uh, how to turn that into a larger set of jokes and turning that into a bit. Yeah. And all of those are steps. You know, there's that line from uh, uh, Annie Hall uh, where he's at the party in Los Angeles and all the LA people are talking. Yeah. And uh, you can assume right now that I'm adding in uh, 10 minutes of anguished ethical conversation about whether it's right or wrong to mention the movie Annie Hall anymore. Uh, just We can all stipulate to that. In the movie Annie Hall, uh, he's at the party in L.A., and someone says something along the lines of, right now it's just a notion, but I'm working, up the, I'm working with some people to see if we can turn it into an idea and then maybe a concept. Hmm. Uh, or something along those lines. Yeah. Where it, the joke is, aren't those all the same thing? Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. But at the same time, they're not all the same thing. To turn a wisp of a thing into a more a bigger thing, into a bigger thing, it's a lot of work to to take... A, uh, the If the idea is a seed, to take the idea and grow it into a tree. Yeah, and make it a big theme. It's It takes example. a lot of building the thing into a larger thing. Yeah, which is why I like to talk... A, to people about their formative experiences and now that brings us back to you okay okay so you do the lot you pay off your loans uh-huh right and then you say all right that's it well I've I, got I, a I'm also i'm still in the job and i i don't love 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 the job but i also don't hate 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 the job mm -hmm. and at the same time like i you know it's easy to say they're a lawyer and it's more prestigious and whatever and so it's scary to like make the leap and at the same time, like, when I was going to those comedy shows in those bars... Did you want to get Manhattan, up and perform? I, I wanted to. And I, in fact, I did. Like, I did a bringer show. Uh, well, you the, must have done an open mic first. No, no, the first thing I ever did was a bringer show. Really? Really. Because I had the sort of, like, set of jokes. That, mm -hmm. like, when we talk about the cocktail party thing. Yeah. The like, oh, I, this. If someone mentions X, I have anecdote Y kind of stuff. So a bringer show is when you get booked, but you <clears> have <throat> to bring a certain amount of yes. people to perform. Which is a, a derogatory term that's highly deserved, but I didn't know any of that at the time. Right. I thought I was performing on a new talent showcase. Right. Which is what they call with it. industry there. They didn't mention that specifically, <laughs> and honestly, there were people who then went on to be like the person who was hosting that open mic, the, who's hosting that bringer. Uh, uh, has hosted SNL. Mm. Uh, not that? then. Ed Helms. Oh, nice. Uh, it was literally, this was the first person I ever emailed about doing anything in comedy. Yeah. It was Ed Helms. Uh -huh. It was a few weeks before he got The Daily Show. And he uh, was still hosting The Bringer at Boston Comedy Club, which I would walk past from my dorm to the law school every day. Nice. And they had a sign for the new talent showcase. Uh, and so I was like, I have enough things that are joke-ish, that, that are algorithmically I insert when I'm telling a funny thing. Let me think about it and work on it. And I, I also, like, since I had been breathing on the glass of watching all the comedy shows, yeah. I'd been doing a more conscious, I'd been making a more conscious effort 
to keep track of funny ideas mm-hmm. and write them down and see whether I could like tease them into more specific things. How much time did you do your first time? First time was like se- five or seven minutes. Okay. Um, and it was, I had worked it out very thoroughly and I had a whole script and it was... You practiced it at home? I practiced it at home. I practiced it in front of like four or five friends. Wow. Uh, I made the, I booked the thing. I, I booked the thing. I emailed, <laughs> I emailed the director of the new talent showcase, yeah. who at the time was at Helms, although neither of us knew it yet. Uh, that's not the right way to put it. Uh, um, <laughs> also a musician at Helms. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Very good banjoist. Um, and so uh, the last day of the Law Review show, my third year of law school, uh, we had a big party that night. And everyone was hanging out, having a good time. And that's about a month before graduation or so. Nice. Because it's a, people are going to be like, well, we got exams. We're not going to mess with our exams. Right. So, so five or six weeks before graduation. So I made an announcement that in like two weeks, I was going to be doing a bringer. There's going to be doing this new talent showcase. And people could, could come and watch it if they wanted. Right. And it's uh, literally uh, where the old Boston Comedy Club was. It's not there anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh but it's the one that uh, Pete Holmes pretends to be in in Crashing. If you've seen the episodes of the yeah. Boston, it's that's the same one. It, did it? Is it <clears throat> did it look like that? Did they rebuild um, it? Or something? I honestly have not watched Crashing as much. Okay, <laughs> uh, not knocking it. Uh, I'm a big fan of everyone I've mentioned by name. Yeah, uh, but <laughs> Jay's holding a hire me sign right now. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm just. Uh, I'm holding a don't be mad at me sign. But, yeah. Uh, uh, but anyway. Uh, I'm, I'm glad it got a second season. I'm glad it got a third season. Yeah. Uh, but so where where Boston Comedy Club was on Third Street, okay, in Greenwich Village. I what is it now? A uh, bank? It's like a Chinese restaurant that's okay. I think almost abandoned. If you know where Il Molino is, the, I, it's a fancy Italian restaurant. Or if you know on Third Street where the firehouse is, there's a firehouse on Third Street south of. If you walk south from Washington Square Park. One block is Third Street. Okay. And there's a block on Third Street where there's a firehouse. It's on that block. Okay. Legendary old club. It was a it was a club for a bunch of years. They had a bringer there. I did the bringer there. And it's, you know, two blocks to the law school and two blocks to the law school's dorm and three blocks to the other dorm of the law school. Four blocks to the other dorm of the law school. It's very convenient. Yeah. Easy to get people out. Easy to get people out. And the the thing that had been our main form of socializing was over. Right. So I made an announcement at that. I was like, oh, this is a fun night thing. So I made an announcement that a bunch of those people ended up coming to the show because yeah. it fits all those check marks. And I had a, in part because I invited uh, 20 highly skilled law students there, I had the perfect audience to perform in front of, which is often how bringers work. How many uh, people did you bring to the It ended spring? up being like 20 for the first night. Oh, my God. They must have well, been so I made excited. An, it was, I don't know if it was exactly that, but I made the big announcement at the thing. Right. Too and, bad you didn't break it up. You could have done like five bringers yeah, instead of one. We are all dumber when we don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sure, sure. Uh, that's, you know, that's not the real lesson I should have taken from it. <laughs> but so I did stand up that night. Yeah. How'd you do? I did pretty well, in part because I had practiced a lot. And in part because I had an audience that knew me. Right. And not just were friends and rooting for me, but also, well, although that's part of it, but we're also like 
had a sense of humor, maybe congenial to mine, from, you know, having had the same main activity at the same, we did the same dorky thing at the same nerdy place for years. And all the jokes were about NYU law professors. God, no. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> um, Everyone else in the club was like, what's going on? No, 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 no. I was not doing that. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, I did a couple of jokes that night I'm not ashamed of. Uh, but I also did jokes that night that I'm absolutely embarrassed by. Yeah. Um, and some of them you're just, you don't know better than to know that someone else has already done a version of that or whatever. Right. But anyway, I really enjoyed, I did pretty well that night and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And one of the other people who were producing the thing, not Ed Helms, but the other guy who was producing the thing, again, I believe Alan Wells was his name and I haven't seen him in a long time. I hope he's well, uh, but I haven't seen him, uh, but I liked him. Uh, and Alan said some very nice things to me after that about uh, me being promising. And have you considered, is this your first time doing it? How much do you want to do this kind of thing? Mm. What are you thinking about in terms of this? And I said, I really enjoyed it. I didn't know about longer term things, but I was open to that. And he very much impressed. Like, if you're going to do this, you got to be doing it seven days a week. You got to be getting out there. And I was like, man, I am locked in yeah. on this other thing. At that point... And I, again, I really, really enjoyed being on stage. I really, really enjoyed telling those jokes. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, but at that point, I was uh, a month away from graduating from law school. I'd already borrowed all $100,000. <laughs> and I already had a job that was lined up that was going to start in September. Right. So all of that stuff, I was like, well, I'm going to do being a lawyer. I'm going to try being a lawyer. And so... I tried being a lawyer. Stuffing your dreams down. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. But, you know, a lot of people do that. Um, and uh, over the course of doing it, it became gradually somewhat less rewarding to me and then somewhat less rewarding than that and more stressful and not as fun. And it became more jobby, more of a job and all the ways that jobs are jobs. Is it possible to practice law during the day and do stand-up at night? It's possible, but it's hard. Um it's really hard. And also, uh, um, it's hard to have the energy mm -hmm. to really be at it. And especially, I did, did open mics a few times mm -hmm. and bringer shows a few times, both. But the open mics were really depressing. And I would be like, well, I didn't have... They still are. <laughs> yeah, but like if you... I don't know. If you go to work for a 12-hour day... Mm. And you get off of work, and it's been mentally demanding work mm, yeah. that has had a decent element of stress to it. It's hard to be like, all right, now volunteer work. Yeah. As opposed to go home and watch, like, Deadwood. Yeah. Shut it down. So you could refuel, recharge. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so I would go, I went to some open mics, and I went to some shows, and I did a few shows here or there where I knew someone. Um, and I, uh, did some bringers, a few of them, but I wasn't doing them very often. And I was, you know, like, again, it was like when I had a, a good set with a good crowd, it was a good time. But with the open mic audiences, it was rough and a little scary. And I felt like, well, so now I'm going to then, in addition to being tired all the time, I'm going to be more tired mm -hmm. in a way that's less rewarding and, you know, 
so so that was sort of where I was thinking. It's also you don't during get, that at an open mic you don't get the reward of doing even a bringer show because at a bringer yeah. show there's an audience. It's not so you don't have the audience thing. You have people who are utterly indifferent, especially. One of the bringers I went to early on, one of the open mics I went to early on was a Tuesday night train wreck that they used to have at Parkside Lounge. Mm-hmm. And I got there at like 7.30 or 8, and I'd like worked pretty diligently to make sure I could get out of my day job in time to get there by 7.30. To sign up. Which, by the way, was not a guarantee that I would be able to leave work as early as 7.30. Wow. It was, a, it was unusual. Like normally I was like working from 10 to 10. Wow. Worth a day job of type hours at the place. Uh, this is a lot of hours for those jobs. Um, <clears throat> and so I got there at 7.30, and then I like went on at like 11.50. Oh, God. And the audience that was there when I went on consisted of like the three people who weren't left. Right. Who hadn't gone up already, and like maybe two other people who had stuck around. And they just and it was four grim hours and of defeated. comedy. Four hours of the same open mic. Yeah. Ugh. Which even if... even if you're Guys, if you're running an open mic... Keep it to under two hours, please. Yeah. Please. Yeah. So, um, so I was like, well, and again, I didn't hate it. It just was like not exciting and it was gradually less fun. And so over the course of the years of that, it was like getting less rewarding. And I was spending a little more time at the office, like staring at the glass of like comics who weren't making a living. Mm-hmm. And, there, and there were comics I admired a lot when I was just like watching this because in 2000 whatever that year <laughs> I was watching that scene a lot and when I was in my third year of law school I was there watching it and there were people I was like how is that person not famous how are they telling a story about their terrifying roommate who lets a German shepherd sleep in the bathtub and they can't afford to move out yeah that person is so funny and they can't afford to not live with a terrifying German shepherd in a bathtub. <laughs> I don't. I think I want to be. Disheartening. A, I think I want to be an attorney. Yeah. If that's the alternative. Well, I think that's why starting in New York is is challenging. That's one of the reasons why starting in New York is challenging. Yeah. For sure. And uh, so I looked at those crazy talented people, and I saw that they were like a temp at a bank, mm-hmm. uh, or uh, whichever other not great job. Yeah. That was like, you know, paid whatever bills, but wasn't stimulating or exciting. And, you know, law, there's a, some dullness to it, but there was also some mental stimulation to it. Um, <clears throat> and I, so I was like, well, if they're not paying their, if they're not do it, making a living from it, how could I make a living from it? Right. And then I also, over the course of the years I was working at the law firms I worked at, I saw those people go from not having day from having day jobs and from being not rewarded for their comedy to some of them being rewarded for their comedy Mm -hmm. and to getting a job writing for uh conan one of them got or uh, one of them got a job uh got like they've got a little more successful at stand-up and then it got to do like a half hour right uh uh, comedy central presents was what those were at the time and so I was like, well, okay. Now the encouragement starts. So I was like, to come. okay, you don't have to be Chris Rock. Right. You don't have to have be so famous that your HBO specials and uh, hosting the Oscars or whatever. Yeah. To be making a living at it. Mm-hmm. 
And so that seemed more viable. Mm-hmm. There, it seemed like there was... People talk about there's others. an in-between. It felt like there was... Okay, now that there seems like there is some middle class, Yeah, I don't have to be like shooting for superstardom. I can be... I can land in middle class. It seems plausible. Totally. And at the same time, you know, I my money was in a different situation in mm-hmm. terms of not owing money, but having money saved eventually by the end of being a full-time attorney. And my I was getting less stimulated by the practice of law in ways that were making it less exhilarating. And <clears throat> so I sort of looked around and then I... Um, I went to a, I went from the big firm I was at to a smaller firm, and part of the theory of that was that it would be hopefully better work life balance, right? Where I could uh, still be you know gainfully employed by the lights of society, <laughs> but also you know you take whatever pay cut, but you get to like uh, leave work a little earlier, have a life, have more of a life. And in that life, I felt I, there could be a space for doing stand up at night where I wasn't as drained and wasn't as exhausted. Right. And where I was, uh, uh, able to do that stand up at night. And, um, in that job, I found that, uh, the smaller firm job ended up not being that different. Was it, it less hours though? It was very, it wasn't that much less hours. Yeah. And my motivation level for the work wasn't zero, but it was like enough less mm-hmm. for than what I wanted to do mm-hmm. that it was sort of hard to like keep it going during the day. Yeah. Right. Like imagine you have a day job mm-hmm. where you can kind of do it whenever you want over the course of the day. Yeah. And if you're diligent and productive yeah, and you have eight hours of work and you start at nine, you can be done at five. If you work just continuously for eight hours, right. Take half an hour for lunch and be done at five thirty. Yeah. But you could also take a break here, take a break there, take mm. a break here, take a break there. And that can add up. And all of a sudden you're there till eight. Yeah. And now imagine that you were going to be there till eight if you had worked diligently. Right. Or you, or it had been presented as a place where you're, Oh, it's going to be 10 hours a week yeah, or 10 hours a day. And then sometimes it turns out to be a little more. And so it ended up not being the, the improvement I was hoping for in terms of work-life balance. Um, I'm surprised you're doing stand-up so much because when you talked about that formative experience of being in the writer's room. Well, but there was also a formative experience of being on stage doing the stand-up. Yeah. That I don't think would have happened if I hadn't been in that writer's room. Right. Um, I really like that stand-up part of it. And the stand-up is the part you can be doing right away. Yeah, and see if your jokes work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, so that's very exhilarating in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so then, uh, but at that point, so I worked at the smaller firm for a bit, and at that, after a few months at the smaller firm, I realized well, I have enough savings; I can kind of just do this. Mm-hmm. And it's it was scary in some ways, but it was also like exciting in other ways, and liberating, and freeing. And the more I sort of thought about that idea, where I didn't need to ask anyone's permission, I could just do it. That seemed exciting. And so, you know, after I'd been there a few months, the, like we, I started there in June and then in December, uh, they were, they did like performance evaluations and in the same performance evaluation, there was like the year end bonus conversation. 
Um, and the, after they gave me, it was like a financial adjacent firm, like it was litigation, but it was, uh, handling a lot of people who worked in securities and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, so after, so the culture of those, of the securities world involves a lot of turnover at bonus time where there's a lot of people getting a bonus and then moving to another job. So it's, it was a fairly common thing in there. Um, <clears throat> so in the conversation where they gave me my bonus, I gave them notice. Nice. And so I worked another two weeks and they were like, all right. Um, okay. And, uh, I left and they were on board with that. Well, no, they, the they were, they understood it was all fine. Um, and also even if they had not wanted to be fine with it, it's a free country where I chose to leave. <laughs> You're um, allowed to do that. Exactly. It's one of the nice things about America. Yeah. You had some time where you weren't working at all and you were just focusing on stand up. So then there was a period where it was that. And now, uh, were you able to handle that? I, a lot of people can't handle that. They need that's some a really structure. good question. So the way I would put it is I was like I when I talked with my parents about it, uh they were like, So how are you gonna do this, Jay? And I said, well, I think I'm going to take a month to just not be a lawyer. Because mm -hmm. I'd been like working as a lawyer in an adult job for like, you know, five years at that point or more. And so they were like, okay, that seems understandable. So I took a month to not be a lawyer. And that sort of stretched into longer and ended up being about six months of not being a lawyer. But were you doing stand-up? Which... Not being a lawyer is a polite way to say I watched a lot of House. Right. Yeah. It's it was like just sort of being, but it didn't involve doing stuff at all. Mm -hmm. You weren't going out. I to wasn't mics really or going anything. out to mics or anything. It was just, and there was an there was part of me that needed an element of decompression. I, I probably could have gotten it over with quicker. Right. But also, you know, the past of the past, whatever. Um, well, I've, I have a friend who's a. Pretty, pretty successful actor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're an actor, you're going on auditions yeah. and there's time in between. So what he always does is get, he always has a part-time job, mm -hmm. a different part-time job all the time, but he likes a part-time job. Because it gives a structure to things. It gives him some structure. And it, some security, too. Yeah, but it's not even the money. It's more just like, okay, cool. I'm working a job. I'm serving people. Okay. It might even be a waiting job or something, but like something to like So ground you don't just them. like drift out. Yeah. Okay. You don't lose touch with things. So I, I did, I got a little uncentered from that. And some of that was useful emotionally and some of it got maybe a little self-indulgent. Right. Yeah. There was a point where I was like, did I need to listen to that many episodes of the Savage Lovecast in the same day? <laughs> To just sit and listen to that. Yeah. That's a, a lot of that. We'll have to bleep that out. No other podcasts are mentioned. Fair enough. <laughs> I thought a non-comedy <laughs> podcast would be safe. That was my mistake. Nice try. Uh, that is a good podcast, though. There are no other podcasts. There is only <laughs> Gary. But uh, So, yeah. So, um, so, I did that for a little bit. And then I was like, no, nah, I need to. That's not. You didn't get out of. You did not stop being an attorney to watch television. Right. That's not what you did. I understand I'm taking a little bit of a break, but you got to go and do. Mm -hmm. And so I started going and doing, and I got into the open mic scene mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, figured out where the open mics were and where they were and got very active in that. And I've been, you know, active in stand-up since then. Mm -hmm. And that seemed like <clears throat> I had taken a couple of classes at UCB when I was an attorney. Improv or sketch? Improv. Okay. And I'm not knocking UCB. I had fairly positive experience with the first class. And then with the second class, I 
was kicked out for non-attendance, actually. Yeah, they only allow you three, I think. I missed three of the first four. I was yeah. missed the first one. I was there for the first one, then missed the next three. And then, because work got busy. Yeah. And so, like, I just didn't have Sundays for a month. Mm-hmm. And then when I called them, they were like, hey, we kind of we can't take you anymore. Yeah. They did keep my money. Of course. Which I understand. I'm not saying that's an unreasonable thing. I think it's a little unreasonable, but also how angry you're going to get. Yeah. Um, and I'm not angry. Uh, but... But uh, I'll mention it. <laughs> I, it was a little irritating at the time because it was not my decision to not make attend those classes. Right. It was a side effect of uh, the job beyond my control. But at the same time, I understand why you knew the rules signing up. They, you know, they do. They do have whatever form of paper. Yeah. Um, I don't begrudge them having their business model. But um, with the classes at the UCB. I was sort of, I was nervous a little bit that they could be like, you're in or you're out. Mm-hmm. And that that got to be someone else's decision who wasn't me. Mm-hmm. And I was also nervous about UCB uh, that they sort of had a business incentive to uh, tell people maybe they were better than they were. This is not to say that the UCB did this. Yeah. But I was concerned with the framework of they pay, you pay them money and then you take the class. Yeah. That their business model. Well, let me put it this way: in law school, one of the cla- one of the cases we looked at in yeah. law school was a contract case about a woman who this is decades and decades old case. Uh, I don't remember the name of the woman, but she was like a little old woman, like in her fifties or sixties or whatever who spent $30,000 in like depression era money mm-hmm. on dance lessons. <laughs> and then at the end of it, her son was like, Hey, where's, where's the money I was going to buy a house with? Yeah. And she was like, look at this cha-cha. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he was angry and was like, how could you have spent this much money? And she was like, uh, they were saying I was going to be a great dancer. And he was like, there's no market for great dancers. Right. And eventually she ended up suing Arthur Murray Dance Company or whoever, being like, how dare you lead me on and tell me I was going to be a professional dancer when there was no way I was going to be that? She lost this case. She totally lost the yes. case. And the court's reasoning was basically, and I maybe I'm getting this wrong, it's literally been years and years and years since I read this case, but uh, she totally lost the case. And the course reasoning was like, well, you also got the instruction yeah. and you got the companionship and the social element of it. And there's a little bit of puffery and maybe they should have maybe not led you on so much about it, but also you kind of can look at the world and it's your job to look at the world and be realistic a little. Yeah. I mean, they could only teach you to be talented, but if you're a total jerk or you show up late all the time. And also if you're trying to start becoming a professional dancer, it's a very limited career path. Yeah. There's not a lot of room for Mm -hmm. it. And there's especially not a lot of room if you're starting as the age at the age of 45. I knew she lost that case because if you're legally allowed to be a, a, telev- a televangelist uh-huh. and say, if you send me money, your diseases God will be will cured. God will heal you. Yeah, yeah if, no, if that's I, legal. I understand that for sure. Yeah. Uh, so, so she, but I was, so I was like, I had in my mind, not that UCB was doing this, mm-hmm. but the sort of 
an inherent problem with the structure of paying money to take a class and then them telling you how good you are. Only for the first couple levels. Then you have to be good to advance. Depends on the thing. It's like I a was video concerned. Game. It was concerned that I would be caring a lot about it and not being able to count on getting accurate feedback. Right, right, right. And in it, because of the business model, not because of the business model, not because of the virtues or character of anyone who works at UCB. Mm-hmm. And, and in no way am I trying to cast aspersions on any of those people. No, I think they do it like a video game. Like you know, how a video game, <clears throat> the, the first board is always easy. Oh, the, sure, sure. So there's some some encouragement, and I understand that. And also, to the extent that dance lessons are a fun activity, <laughs> it's perfectly fine to just have fun with it absolutely and to the extent improv classes are a fun activity it's perfectly fine to just have fun and be friendly and be like good for you for trying yeah and but at the same time if you're like i want this to be my dream yeah then you there's a specific feedback you're looking for that's different right and so that was a concern for me and it felt like doing the ucb path as opposed to the open mic path, mm-hmm. the open mic path felt more independent and it felt more honest too. It felt more protected against uh, institutional incentives. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not trying to insult anyone and I, I, I'm trying to sort of be. But it's also different. I mean, improv and stand up are very different. Yeah. And also. With improv, I was not great at it. And here's a this is a true thing about improv: uh, you have to say stuff whether you have stuff to say or not. Right. Yeah. And I would the part of me that craves approval. Yeah. Is a real part of me, and a very understandable part of me. And especially in those settings where you're like, you just gotta go, man. Hmm. Um, I found myself accidentally saying funny things other people had said. Oh just to get the laugh in the pressure moment. Right. And if you're doing stand-up, you're not at risk of doing that. Yeah. Because you're choosing what you're doing. That was Robin Williams' problem. That was Robin Williams' problem, for sure. Yeah. But also, he wasn't as scrupulous about that Mm -hmm. as he could have been. But he was, the kind of stand-up he was doing was very improv-y, too. Where he made his, he'd made the choice to make his stand-up Mm improv-y in that way. Um, I still remember, like, at one point, at, at, at various points when I did improv, like, I remember specific jokes from, like, Steve Martin and The Simpsons that, like, I was like, I can't think of anything that's not that to say, and I can think of that, and it's funny, and I would get a laugh in this moment. Oh, right. And it's in no case, in no way, like, a malice thing, but it was, like, not a great fit in that way. Yeah. So I was concerned about that part of it. Um, and also... Um, the lawyer side of my brain, the like really analytical stuff mm-hmm. is very good at breaking down stuff. And the part of me that went to law school is a natural pe- pessimist in the first place. <laughs> um, and so the way I say this, when I'm talking about it conversationally, um, is like improv is yes. And yeah. And my default mode instinctively is more no for the following three reasons. Yes. I noticed that throughout this interview, actually. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> um, and so that kind of uh, instinct felt more 
suited to stand up. Absolutely. And so for various... And also not being in control. Yeah. And so for those various reasons of temperament mm-hmm. and independence um, and immediate gratification, and also if you're bad at improv, yeah, it's not fun. It's painful. And you sort of don't have control over it. Yeah. And you're going to be bad at improv for a while. Mm-hmm. And you're reliant on the people Even if you're good you. at improv, you're not good at it right away, and it takes a long time, and it's excruciating. This is I've said this before, but I, I mean it. One reason why I think bad stand-up is more fun to watch than bad improv uh-huh. as an audience member is if you're watching bad stand-up, you can, to borrow a term from law, you can have per, you can give yourself permission to treat the witness as hostile. Right, yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You'd be like, he had the nerve to stand up in front of a microphone can, and say that? You're just sitting in a chair just having thoughts in your head. Yeah. And you can start rooting against them. Yeah, exactly. You could do that as a person watching bad stand-up. You can't do that for an improv team. Yeah. How how bad a person would you have to be to go to an improv show and be like, I hope this stays bad? <laughs> you're, you're, you're just... Watching a bad improv show is watching friends let each other down. Yeah. It's awful. Yeah. That, it, it's the, and the part of you that is a kind person is the part that makes that worse. So... Ah, so for those reasons, and I have nothing but respect for good improvisers, and I admire the positivity of even bad improvisers, and man, um, the skills you learn in improv that allow you to do the things that those good improvisers do are extremely useful skills when it comes to being a generator of comedy content. They absolutely are. The improv skills are good for life. They're good for everything. That's a great conversational skill to yes and just in conversation. That's why salespeople take improv. Everybody takes improv. Yeah, yeah. Everyone can benefit from improv. And so a lot of people can benefit from it. If your goal is to get a job in comedy, uh, you don't want to take the dance lessons. And then it turns out you were a 45-year-old woman whose uh, instructor was flirting with her just to get another class signed up. Right. Right? It's like you're worried that the the waitress... You don't ask out a waitress because you... Know they're being nice to you because it's their job. Yeah. Right? It's not Don't fair to Don't flirt put with the, the bartender. It, there's a certain <laughs> amount that's a flirting that's like, fine. And there's a certain amount that becomes oppressive. And yeah. keep it in the area where it's friendly. Right. You know? Uh-huh. And it also depends on the signals you're getting or whatever. Yeah. But, so, so, what, so, so what's next? So that was why stand-up instead of improv. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I could definitely see you getting into writing, too. I would love that. Yeah. I would love I that. Mean, your send, jokes me, are very... send me packets if you, if you come across <laughs> them. Um, yeah how do you hear about those and by the way other people in the audience who were like Jay is funny and we should send him packets fucking send me packets so I can write let me know about packets when they're out there Mm -hmm. definitely so that's that's a thing I'm doing and I'm I'm doing so I'm doing stand up and then I'm also when I get the packet opportunities that uh, I am able to do while not messing with my day job schedule Mm -hmm. uh, I will do those packet opportunities and, uh, uh, you know, also on the side, I try to write some, yeah. uh, like various other humor pieces and of whatever kind. I think and you're so also the things I'm trying to do. You're and also, then also a, good a punch lot up. of it's, you're also a good punch you. up person. Thank yeah. you. Another reason to hire me people. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I don't want to tell specific people to hire me, but I'm happy to tell the field at large. Yes. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I think uh, stand-ups can, <coughs> should hire you to, if they're going to do their half hour or whatever, they're special. Oh, I'd love to, I would love to do that. I would do that for free happily. Hire you for punch-ups, absolutely. I really enjoy that kind of stuff. Which, by the way, is sort of the same thing as being in that writer's room. Yeah. I've always thought that you're good at that. And I always thought if, if I do my special, I'd want to have well, thank you, you Gary. I appreciate watching that. and punching it up. That's Give very nice of you to say. I, I genuinely, genuinely appreciate that. Yeah, you're good at that. That's why you're a good host. Ah, thank you. Mm-hmm. It is, by the way, for those of you out there who like are thinking about comedy, and I imagine many of you are if you're listening to this, mm-hmm. um, I do recommend hosting an open mic mm-hmm. uh, in certain ways for that. Um, partly because it's just citizenship. Like if you live in Israel, serve a year in the IDF, you know? <laughs> so some of it's basic, oh, just community citizenship. But also... If you host an open mic and you go up in between performers and riff on them, you can literally double the amount of time you spend riffing a week. Yeah. Because if you say there's 15 people at an open mic and you go up, go to 15 open mics, mm-hmm. which is on the high side. I think most people don't go to that many. Again, go out. However many open mics you're going to is the right number for you. That's not what I'm trying to change. But... <coughs> If you get up on stage and tell a joke, riff on the last person's set, a one-sentence joke after their set, mm-hmm. and you do that 15 times over the course of the open mic you host, you just riffed 15 times. Yeah, and also... And the, at the open mics, you do 15 in a week. You riffed 15 times at those. So also double. The, the practice of walking up to the microphone, that whole thing, the little fear that happens walking up to the stage, you really kind of... I think there's some of that. I also think you can get out. I think there's a certain number of years where you've gotten mastered that part, the mastered the not having butterflies mm-hmm. at a, in a low consequence moment at a certain point. There's still moments of high consequence or higher consequence where people can get nervous. Absolutely. And, you know, you want to have techniques for those too. Yeah. Yeah. Jay, thanks a lot for uh, sharing this. Thank you so much for having me, Gary. This was uh, very fun. I hope I didn't uh, ramble too much. We'll see. <laughs> I don't think so. I'm, I'm going to listen to the episode. It's going to be 28 minutes long, and I'm going to be like, oh, that was devastating. Uh-huh. <laughs> Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hulu.